0: And while the children are going, would you please, the rest of you, find your Bibles and turn with me this morning to the book of Genesis, chapter 2, once again. Have that open before you, Genesis chapter 2. And as we anticipate God's word this morning, let's pray, let's ask for help. So would you pray with me, please? Father, we do ask now for your grace. We know that you are eager, your posture towards us is one of gracious love, eagerness to bless. Father, we we're here in anticipation. We're here in some measure of excitement. What are you gonna tell us today? What are we gonna hear from you today? And so, Lord, we thank you for the privilege. I thank you for the privilege of being able to speak your word. We thank you for the privilege of being able to hear your word. And yet, at the very same time, we're aware of privilege. We're aware of our desperate need. And so, God, I pray that we would, we would humble ourselves from the youngest in this room to the eldest, that there would be a posture of placing ourselves willingly under your voice, your word, eager to receive good from you. So we pray that, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. Well, you know that we are in this series that we have called Key Issues. And I've said this every week for the past three weeks. This is not about the coming election. But, it's not unaware of the coming election. We're looking at these key truths, foundational truths, from God's Word. So far, we've seen the equality of all human beings, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of sex, regardless of class, all made in the image of God, and therefore, all equal. And we've seen the sanctity of all human life. God-breathed, God-given life. So it's, it's precious. It's to be protected from the womb to the grave and all the way through. And we've seen the divine design. We saw this last week, the divine design of human sexuality. Male and female, distinct, different, determined by God. The equality of human being, the sanctity of human life, God's design of human sexuality. These are things that we want to be in place, certainly in our lives and in our church, but we want them to be in place in society as well for the good of and the protection of everybody. So these truths, these key foundational truths should shape how we think, they should shape how we live, and yes, they should shape how we vote come November. And this morning we come to a fourth key foundational truth, and it's about marriage. So look with me at the last two verses in Genesis chapter 2. This is God's word, verse 24. Therefore, A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. I recognize that in some ways what I'm about to say is an oversimplification. But as I look at Scripture, I see two great ways that the Bible speaks to us. One of the ways that Scripture speaks to us is by speaking to what we should see and believe. It presents us with these great truths about the greatness and the power and the sheer magnificence of God, and it calls us to behold that and to believe it. Listen to just one example of this way that Scripture speaks. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 24. God says, I am the Lord who made all things. I alone stretched out the heavens. I spread out the earth by myself. We hear that, and we understand that kind of Scripture is there to very purposefully set before us a vision of what God is like so that we see it and something is awakened inside of us. And the right response is wonder and worship and belief. A lot of Scripture is like that. I mean, the Gospels are like that. They set before us great truth about Jesus so that we might see and believe. The book of Acts is like that. It sets before us great truth about what the Holy Spirit can do so that we might see and believe. The great narratives of the Old Testament are like that, setting before us the power of God so that we might see and believe. And much of the Old Testament prophets like Isaiah that I just quoted are like that, setting before us truth about God's greatness. A lot of Scripture is like that, so that we can see, so that our eyes can be opened, and it builds our faith. But the Bible also speaks another way. The Bible also speaks to how we should live. It speaks to our faith, what we should see and believe, and it speaks to our obedience, how we should live. Now, when the Bible speaks like that, it's not just engaging in moralism. You know, do this, do that. Lots of people think that's what the Bible is, and that's all the Bible is, and they could not be further from the truth. Most of the Bible is about who God is and what he's like and what he's done for us. And even when the Bible gives instructions in how we should live, it's all on the foundation of who God is and what he's done for us and what God makes possible in our lives. But it does speak to how we should live. And that's what's happening here in Genesis 2, 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. God is here setting out what marriage should look like, how we should do it. So who should listen this morning? Well, all of us. I mean, this is God's design. This is God's Will So those who are married should listen so that we can think rightly and live rightly in our marriages. And those who are not married should listen so that they can think rightly about marriage. And those who see the possibility of marriage in the future should listen. And those who look back on marriage, for whatever reason in their past should listen. We all should listen to what God says. This was written so that all of us can think and live rightly and make sure to honor marriage as God designed it and for what God intends it for. So my aim this morning is to call us to be in sync with God about marriage and to be out of sync with what you regularly run up against in this world that has taken its cue from secular thought that elevates personal autonomy as the highest good and it celebrates that everywhere you turn and which has done so much damage to human beings. My aim is to encourage us this morning to set our lives here on foundational truth and let it shape how we think and how we live with reference to marriage to let God who made heaven and earth and everything else including marriage for our good and for his glory let's let him tell us what marriage is and what it should look like so let's look here you know we learn so much about marriage from these two verses I mean, here is a picture of the The precious and beautiful and honorable and pure, and not just God-sanctioned, but God-blessed, God-designed, God-pleasing reality called marriage. A man and a woman cleaving to each other in a deep covenantal commitment and union and holding fast to that until death or some terrible covenant-breaking action separates them. Now, obviously, this is not all the Bible says about marriage. The Bible says a lot about marriage, but it's all built on the foundation of these two verses. You know, when Jesus talks about marriage, he points back to and, in fact, quotes these verses. Listen to this. This is Mark chapter 10. Jesus speaking, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. That's Jesus. And the Apostle Paul, when he talks about marriage, he points back to and in fact quotes those same two verses. This is Ephesians chapter 5. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So this is, I mean, this is truly a foundational truth. And may I just say this morning, we need to feel the weight of this. We need to feel the full weight of this, especially in a culture where more and more the reference points are personal or cultural rather than grounded in what is true. More and more, the key drivers with reference to marriage or sexuality are personal freedom as opposed to anything that might be actually grounded in truth. And I don't want us uh, as a church, as, as believers, to be kind of constantly in some p- defensive position, always pointing to the you know, unraveling of the moral fabric of society. The position we should be taking is that of something really good, And yes, when that good is abandoned, that opens the door to all kinds of hurt, all kinds of harm. But fundamentally, there is something so good here. And so for our good, and for the good of society, we need to let what God says about marriage shape our thinking and our living. So, like last week, I want to just make four very simple observations from these verses Let's hear what God says about marriage. First, observation number one. Marriage is a special kind of relationship between a man and a woman. Please notice how I said that. Marriage is a kind, a special kind of relationship between a man and a woman. So that rules out polygamy Multiple husbands, multiple wives And it rules out same-sex marriage Look at verse 24 Once again Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother And hold fast to his wife Now there's a really important word in that verse It's the very first word of the verse Do you see it there? Therefore, that tells us that marriage grows out of God's design of human sexuality. It's not equivalent to human sexuality. You are fully male or fully female without being married. Human sexuality, maleness and femaleness, exists before marriage, but it's clear that marriage grows out of God's design of human sexuality. That's what that word, therefore, is telling us. So what's, what's the logic exactly? Well, Genesis 2 is telling us that now, with the creation of the woman, there is now a fit partner for the man, a partner. Remember how we said this last week, corresponding to him. Back up in verse 20, <laughs> there wasn't one. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. But in verse 23, there is one. Let's start at verse 22. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then, then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Therefore, marriage. In other words, now that there is a someone corresponding to, suited to him, it makes all the sense in the world for them to become partners. You can't have marriage without male and female, but with male and female, this partnership makes sense. Which is why, for a moment, in verse 24, Genesis 2 steps away from describing what's going on with Adam and Eve. And it makes this generalized statement about all human marriage. Here is this complementary pair. Biologically complementary. Anatomically complementary. Psychologically complementary. Emotionally complementary. They're suited to each other. Both of them, male and female, in God's image, one the head, the other the crown. They belonged to each other. They were a gift to each other. How happy Adam must have been. God had provided everything for him, and then he brings him this woman to be his wife. The very first marriage on earth took place right there in the Garden of Eden. You talk about a destination wedding. Except they didn't have to go anywhere. This is home. And they were united by God himself. And every marriage between a man and a woman stands fundamentally on this same foundation of God's design. So first, marriage is a special kind of relationship between a man and a woman. Well, what kind of relationship? Second, observation number two. It's exclusive. It's exclusive. Now that doesn't mean that the husband and the wife, once they get married, can't have any relationship with anybody else. No, it means you can't have this kind of relationship with anyone else. This relationship is exclusive. Look again at verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother I mean the most important relationship For a man prior to this That with his father And his mother Which has shaped him Far and away more than anything else Parents you know this You just pour your life into your kids And that gets replaced By someone he's hardly had a chance to get to know. I didn't like this When my children got married I mean I was glad that they had another friend You know that's fine (laughs) But I still wanted to be the most Important relationship in their lives I mean I get this But I didn't want our relationship to change But there it is A man shall Leave His father and his mother. Now, does this apply only to the man? Does this mean that women don't need to leave their father and their mother? No. The point here is that the man takes the initiative. He takes the step first and invites the woman to take a similar step. That's the pattern we see throughout the marriage accounts in God's Word. But there must be this purposeful prioritizing and protecting of this relationship such that no other relationship intrudes on the covenant and union between a husband and a wife. What they have is shared with no other. Their unique trust. Their unique love, their unique covenant It's theirs, no one else's It's exclusive And it should come as no surprise that both the marriage And all of the privileges of that marriage Will be damaged, sometimes irrevocably If that exclusivity is not honored And friends, please do not think of this As limiting your freedom Or your life God does not give limits that lead to death. He gives limits that lead to life and joy. And he does this because he loves us, not because he's some authoritarian. So second, it's exclusive. It's a special kind of relationship between a man and a woman, and it's an exclusive relationship. Now third, it's, it's permanent permanent. Verse 24, once again, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. That phrase, hold fast, speaks of a permanent bond. And please notice once again, it's, it's the man who's doing this. But just like it was with the leaving, so it is with the holding fast. It's both husband and wife who do this. It's just that the man is to initiate. He takes the step, creating a safe place for the woman to take her step. There's a reason why, at a wedding, the groom speaks his vows first. That's not arbitrary. That, that is full of meaning. And it takes its cue right from this verse. Both of them hold fast. I mean, try holding hands without both people holding each other's hands. It's, I suppose technically you could do it But it kind of misses the point It's a mutual holding And this holding here it speaks, it speaks of permanence This is a really strong word It speaks of intensity, it speaks of passion It speaks of permanence All the way to the end Which is going to call for a lot of, self, a lot of self-sacrifice and a lot of self control and a lot of selflessness over the course of a marriage. You know those words in the wedding vows? Uh, I had to pull them out yesterday just to make sure because I was thinking, did I did I really make that promise? I mean it's incredible. Who who would have the audacity to make promises like this for better or worse? For richer or poorer? in sickness and in health, till death do us part, even if the earth gives way, and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, come what may, so long as you both shall live. Now, I added a couple things in there. But you get the point. You know, as a matter of practice, when I'm doing premarriage counseling with a couple, at the end of the very first session, I, I pull out the traditional vows, and I hand them to the couple, and I just very nonchalantly say to them, you know, you might want to look these over. And sometimes, sometimes I tell them, you don't have to use the traditional wording. In fact, sometimes couples beat me to the punch, and they say, can we write our own vows? And I say, well, yeah, but I want to see them first. And then I tell them, there's two things you must include, and if you don't, I will not marry you. There's two things you must promise. You must promise exclusivity, and you must promise permanence. You and you alone and you until one of us dies. Because if you're not promising those, those things, you're not promising what God has called you to promise. All right, one more observation. We've seen marriage as a special kind of relationship between a man and a woman. It's an exclusive relationship. It's meant to be a permanent relationship. Now forth, it is a specially God-sealed, God-sanctioned relationship. Look at verse 24 one more time. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. How does that happen? Well, God does it. Remember that passage from Mark that I mentioned earlier when Jesus was talking about this? I left off a really important verse. Here's what Jesus says, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. And then Jesus says this, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. God made the man... God made the woman, and God made the marriage. And he continues to perform that miracle of creation every time a man and a woman stand before God and make these covenant promises to one another. Genesis 2.24 is not just about Adam and Eve. It's about marriage. So let's look at that phrase at the end of verse 24 for just a moment. That phrase, one flesh, it's a metaphor. It's a figure of speech. You don't literally kind of melt into each other and become one body. It's speaking of a reality that God makes, a spiritual oneness. I don't know if it was just bad teaching when I was younger or, or just a natural association, but I remember hearing that and thinking that was a reference to physical intimacy in marriage. Actually, it goes the other way. Physical intimacy in marriage is a representation of this greater thing This oneness God has joined husband and wife together He's made something new There is a union God creates this and it's fundamental to his design And this clear statement in Mark chapter 10 speaks of it What God has joined And if we see marriage this way Instead of seeing it as the world so frequently does As some you know, kind of arrangement between two independent people, some agreement that they make, I tell you, it will make all the difference in how we live out our marriages. I mean, listen to how Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 5. After having talked about Christ's love for the church, this is what Paul says, in the same way husbands should love their wives, as their own bodies He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. You see, if that is your mindset, that that you're one flesh, then there's going to be a collaboration and a care for one another. There's going to be a, a spiritually and emotional oneness with each other. That's what we see there. In verse 25, Genesis 2, that verse that kind of makes us blush sometimes. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Again, that's not talking explicitly or exclusively about the physical dimension. That's speaking of openness and care and foreness towards each other. It's operating out of this oneness, which moves towards protectiveness and care and freedom toward each other. I'm, I'm here for you, and I know you're there for me, and you can reach me easily when you're afraid or when you're weighed down, and you can count on compassion and care. It won't be perfect, but it'll be there. I'll be there. All of that flowing out of a reality that God made. So, four Simple observations about marriage. It is a special kind of relationship between a man and a woman, nothing else. It is meant to be exclusive. It is meant to be permanent. It is especially sealed, sanctioned by God. Now, as I wrap this up, let's get real. As we have needed to over these past three weeks. This is God's design, but God's design does not go unchallenged. And marriage has been, along with human equality, along with the sanctity of human life, along with God's design for human sexuality of male and female, marriage too has been a target of sin, such that there are all sorts of deviations from God's design, and every deviation is destructive to human being and to society, without exception. And you hear the voices that say, Wait a second. Are you saying that same-sex marriage or sex outside of marriage is wrong? Yes. Even if it's between consenting adults? Yes. How dare you? You don't have the right to say that. that. that's robbing me of my freedom and my happiness no it is not you see maybe there's another way to look at this maybe God's design and God's limits are there because God is actually eager for your joy and your freedom and your wholeness and our departure from God's design actually leads to emptiness and broken heartedness and pain and numbness Friends, God is a good God, and he's a redeeming God. In Christ, God is redeeming all things. Yes, individuals, men and women, but also sexuality and marriage. God's design is good for every one of us. Yes, we're all broken, I mean really messed up by sin. But Jesus Christ redeems broken people. Jesus Christ forgives real sinners. Jesus Christ restores and washes clean the ashamed. And there will come a time when Jesus will not just redeem, but he will transpose marriage, sexuality to a higher key. So that all who belong to him... All who have come to him in repentance and faith, whether you're married or single, will sit down at the great marriage feast. Jesus, with all of his own, men and women, married or single, all fellow heirs of the grace of life. Because after all, that's what marriage has been pointing to all along. When the Apostle Paul quotes these verses from Genesis chapter 2, he follows it by saying, this mystery is great, but I'm speaking of Christ and the church. Friends, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but the fact is, as persistent as are the effects of sin in our lives, more persistent are the effects of the redemption of Christ Jesus. As powerful as is the purpose of Satan, more powerful is the purpose of Christ. So, dear ones, let's embrace God's design, and let's embrace Christ's redemption of that design in our marriages and for the marriages of those around us. Let's live in the good that God intended Marriage is such a precious thing It's not the only thing It's not the only way to live a life that is valuable and pleasing to God But it is a precious thing to be honored And held in honor Protected, encouraged, supported, promoted This marriage This design For our good And for God's glory Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what you've spoken, but God, before that, thank you for what you did and what you've done. What a beautiful world. We can see it even though ravaged by sin. We can see the beauty. All we have to do is Open our eyes and look around. The incredible world you've made, incredible people in your image, and then this incredible thing of marriage. God, thank you. I pray that we as a church would would love your wisdom and your design and that we would protect and honor any marriage that we might be a part of or marriages around us, God. We pray that we would do that for our good, but also for the good of our society, both now and in the future. God, we pray strengthen believers to live according to what you've said. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.